Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Mathieu Lacombe, Adam Sheehan, Richard Aikenhead, Shane Malone, and Aaron Coots. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So after the great feedback I've had on the Sprints Masterclass and on the Velocity Based Training Masterclass over the last three or four weeks, I thought I'd do one on training load. So there could be, or there will be, about four of these because the amount of training load chat that has gone on the last five years uh, is incredible. And looking back, I actually forget what kind of uh, unbelievable guests have been on the podcast and, and shared their wisdom and their knowledge. So in this episode, we've got Richard Aikenhead, we've got Shane Malone, we've got Aaron Coots, we have Matthew Lacombe, and we have Adam Sheehan. So a real um, masterclass, you could call it, of guys coming on to discuss uh, all things from RPEs to acute current ratios to measuring neuromuscular fatigue and to accelerometers and what we can trust with GPS. So hopefully you'll get tons from it. It's obviously an in vogue topic to discuss, so it, it comes at a nice time. Um, but I'm sure the guys will remind you of some great content. And please do, if you, if you hear something that kind of pricks your ears up, make sure you uh, take note of the episode and jump back and have a little listen. But yeah, I'm sure you'll enjoy this uh, masterclass episode in training load. But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard of Vald Performance, they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the Groin Bar, and the all-new Human Track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdperformance.com uh, or follow them on Twitter at valdperformance. So their all-new Human Track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So Human Track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results with some more to come which will be openly available via the Valve Performance website when they do become available. So if you, like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit valdeperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at valdeperformance. Also sponsoring this episode today is Forstex. So big thanks to Forstex for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit forstex.com but also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com forward slash 139, where co-owner of Forstech, Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. Um, it's certainly not a sales pitch for Forstech, but you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of Forstex uh, as re with regards to the, the software. So if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. So without further ado, over to the episode with Adam Sheehan, Matteo Lacombe, Aaron Coots, Shane Malone and Richard Aikenhead. 
So the first audio clip in this training load masterclass comes from episode 180 and 181 with Shane Malone and Shane Mangan. So this audio clip comes from Shane Malone talking about the acute current ratio, uh, what it is, how it's used, and a few potential problems which arise when using ratios. So first audio clip coming from Shane Malone. Hope you enjoy. Yeah, so I suppose, obviously, I think I don't think I need to introduce the acute chronic. Uh, I think most people know it. Tim, Tim Gabet has uh, popularized it quite substantially. So it's basically, it comes from your banister, old school banister model of uh, fitness minus fatigue uh, equals performance, I suppose. It's a very simplistic view on things, but that's sort of where the, the model stems from. So performance, sorry, is fitness minus fatigue. So your acute chronic basically is a ratio of that per se. Um, is it the be all and end all? From my view, we use it to sort of monitor athletes and see how their both their rolling average and their exponentially exponentially weighted average is looking. Uh, it's probably more heuristic, and it has associations with injury rather than its ability to predict injury. I think. That's sort of the part, in my opinion, that's been kind of latched onto and sort of that oh, one measure can predict injury. I don't think really, personally, there's too many factors going on with an athlete from his home life to his work life to his training performance to the video analysis he might have to do to say that one ratio that is based on one metric or a average of three rolling averages to give, like I say, a running acute chronic can openly predict injury. But what it definitely is, is it's it's a good guide that coaches understand really easy. So what we're doing is we're referencing what we've done this week against our average of the last four, or referencing today versus, or referencing, sorry, the previous seven days versus the last 28 days. And like, it's, it's a very simplistic measure. And I think that's why it's, I think it will definitely continue to be, be to be used. Uh, the argument for me is statistical perfection minus, uh, versus practical realities. So I fully understand that there's flaws to integrated ratios, whether that is uh, an acute or a chronic or whether that's a, an internal and external. But if there is a consistent trend for the ratio to be associated with injury, it's not going to predict it, but I'd rather have that association in my back pocket to go to a physio or go to a coach and go, yeah, we're spiking on acute chronic care today. Maybe we need to maybe look at a player's pre-training scores here and see how he, she is feeling or, okay, the goal for this week is to have a sub-maximal spike in load or have a 1.2 on our acute chronic because we know that you can still maximally spike athletes, you're going to have to, to improve fitness. But again, I'd rather have it there as an option for me, Rob, than not have it. And I think it's here to stay. I think it will still get the academic scrutiny that it probably deserves as a metric. So I think there's probably other research to come out that say that it doesn't predict injury. I think most people who use it on a day-to-day basis will openly admit it doesn't. But I think they're going to want that association with injury risk in their back pocket to chat the coaches and have those conversations than not have it. So why is the, why is the innate uh, problems with ratios, like you say, internal, external, acute, chronic? What are the, um, yeah, what are the, what are the issues? Just get into the intricacies a little bit. 
two different, well, if you're internal, external, it's two different constructs of load uh, that you're sort of, like as well, if you look at, say, some of the internal measures that uh, you might correlate against, uh, there's an association already there because you're referencing internal heart rate against, say, uh, an internal blood marker, so on and so forth. Some of the criticisms that have been shed my way for some of the internal ratios. But again, I go back to statistical perfection minus or versus, say, practical realities. So with these ratios, if they're associated with something, if they're associated with a change in fitness, if they're associated with an injury risk, I'd rather have that in my toolbox for planning training sessions and monitoring training sessions than having nothing at all. Now, I know we can go back and look at, say, like weekly loading or time above X heart rate or uh, just the, the, say, an individualized training impulse or a DRP by itself. But ultimately, you're going to be looking at, say, percentages, which, again, is another ratio. So there's flaws with, say, percentage weekly change, all that stuff. If you delve in deep into the statistics, of every ratio used, whether it's a percentage or an integrated ratio, there's statistical flaws with it from my basic reading of them. But again, we're just we're trying to provide different measures so we can manage players, manage super compensation, keep our athletes injury free, and basically keep our players on the pitch. So an acute chronic ratio or an internal external ratio is something that I think they'll be here to stay probably up to smarter minds than me to come up with the, per the perfect ratio. Mm -hmm. But we know that these ratios are linked to changes of fitness, linked to injury risk. Like there's many research papers that have shown that. So I think I'd rather have the association with me than not. Mm -hmm. So who are the guys out there who are taking this, taking this forward in terms of the research side of things? Uh, integrated training loan ratios, obviously, if you're looking at, say, objective, internal, and then external, you're looking at guys like Ibrahim Akubat, uh, Joe Sanders, uh, Rich Taylor, we've stuff coming out and hurling on it. Uh, Jay Stoney's done some stuff on uh, the training efficiency index. Uh, then if you're looking at acute chronics, uh, you've got Aaron, obviously, Couts, who's done some good work recently in that group on its associative powers, but not its predictive powers. I think Tim will have a bit of a say still, Tim Gabet on acute chronics and their association of risk or other physical qualities on acute chronics and the protective effect that they might have. Uh, hopefully we can do some additional work on it in terms of acute chronics and risk. Uh, but yeah, like I think it's open to many PhD students to bring the field on. I don't think anyone's going to begrudge them in terms of progressing the field, whether that's in a positive way or to the detriment of a specific metric. So this second audio clip comes from Aaron Coots and that is in episode 177. So Aaron discusses, again, it kind of builds on the, the first audio clip from Shane Malone in the, some of the problems associated with the acute current ratio. But Aaron gives a nice balanced approach uh, and some real nice insights into what you should be aware of when using the acute current ratio, which obviously is uh, massively popular um, with practitioners out there. So, so over to the second audio clip of this training load masterclass with Aaron Coots. Yeah, well, I think you know, the acute to chronic ratio, it's a nice rule of thumb. You know, it's a simple sort of heuristic we can use in our day-to-day -day work. It's definitely made um, understanding training load and, and issues around load more obvious to the uninitiated or less initiated. But I think also it's, um, you know, it's, 
it's also presents something that coaches have known for a long time. Like don't avoid doing too little work, avoid doing too much work and avoid changing it too quickly. Um, so I think actually it's a nice contribution in, you know, in, in, in a, it's a part of our decision-making process. Um, there's a lot more to be done to unpack it in the detail, but you know, academically it gets a little bit controversial and around you know, uh, some of the issues around you know, decay models or impact of missing data or you know, the coupling of the numerator and denominator and the calculation. There's, they can read those in the, in the academic papers, but I think the contribution itself has made um, many, many of us more aware of the impact of controlling load or monitoring and controlling load. And it's one metric. It's a part of many other metrics you use. But, um, so I think it's a nice practical contribution. Um, but academically, you know, we tend to get caught up in the minutia. Um, yeah, I think we've mis misinterpreted it as probably being a predictive, and it's definitely not a predictive tool. But um, it's definitely got some associations with, you know, with some injury. Um, and uh, so I think I recommend using it, uh, but I just think being aware and understanding where it's how it's calculated, some of the limitations that it, uh, it has with it, um, and also understanding where it comes from. You know, like it's a, it's a simple application of um, Eric Bannister's fitness fatigue model, um, and it's a really nice application of that. So do you think people have gone too, too heavy on it and too reliant on it, or are they, do you think they're way to do it? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, it's very difficult. Not others do, but I do know. Um, you know, it's like anything. We jump in deep for a start. We should go step back and just understand and unpack things where they come from. It's a it's a tool and one tool we can use, but it's you know it's just as effective and as useful as um, you know, wellness measures, for example. Um, I think we've got some projects going on at the moment, not necessarily in team sports, but have, have looked at the contributions um, to whether any of this monitoring, whether acute to chronic, other monitoring tools. Are more effective than a than an expert coach, and uh, we, we find it does contribute a little bit. But expert coach is also really, um, really, really good and really bright, and they understand a lot, in particular performance changes. Um, and this is in endurance sports. We're trying to do some projects as well in team sports. As well. What do we actually contribute beyond the expert coach? So, in terms of the acute, the chronic, I tend to think you know it's a it's a simple, um, applicable tool. Um, you got to be careful what you use it with. You know, like we usually only use one metric of load in it, but load has many constructs. So, you know, you can control your total distance and calculate the current for that, where your accelerations, for example, might be spiking when your distances aren't. They're, like, it's, it's pretty complex when you get into the minutiae of it. So I know you said that people can, people can get in, uh, in, the, in the research with regards to the, the, the downfalls of it and negatives of it, but just want to give us a bit of a kind of high-level overview of, some of the, the couple of things, I think you mentioned three potential um, negatives of the acute chronic, just to give us a high level of people that maybe haven't well, heard of that yet. Yeah, I suppose um, so the academic arguments, but, you know, the, so it assumes that, you know, the fundamental model presented is that, you know, there's no decay in training load effect, there's no legacy effect, the decay effect of load, and so load further away from the day you do your day of training has less of an effect than the, the day you've just recently done. And so there's some, you know, the, the decay models, and hasn't you can build those in, and they're available, you know, there's studies being published and there's discussions about that. Um, there is the limitation of it only... Well, it doesn't only, you can do multiple models, but if you use just one input variable, you're only getting an acute to chronic or any, an indicator of that construct of load or that measure of load. And there's no one single measure of load that 
predicts anything. I think, you know, you can get different loads from different stimulus from different types of training and we, we all do very training. So you need to be careful of, about that. If you have missing data at all, that can definitely impact um, the calculation. So, um, and I think Martin Bashot wrote a nice paper on British Journal of Sports Medicine around the impact of that from a practical point of view in, in, um, in soccer. Um, and also the um, mathematically, I suppose, a coupling of a numerator on a denominator in the calculation so, the, so that the recent week, the acute load, actually is related or co-related to the um, denominator, the chronic load, and just separating those in the calculation um, and there's a paper recently discussing that, I think, from, um, from uh, I think, Lolly was the author in British Journal of Sports Medicine. There's some of the basic um, academic criticisms of it, but um, I think generally as a contribution, it's a, it's a nice contribution as a rule of thumb, but I, I wouldn't be led blindly by it. So this next audio clip comes from Aaron Coots again in episode 177. Just gives a nice roundup of RPE, obviously coming from the main man when it comes to RPEs, but also a little look into the future with regards to training load and where training load monitoring is going. So second, sorry, second audio clip from Aaron, but third audio clip overall, over to Aaron Coots again. Yeah, if you, you, know, you follow some of the basic rules of psychometrics or any measuring psychological measures, you know, you, you should... Anchor, and I've not seen too many places that anchor anchor football players in particular. You have how you know the upper and lower limits, and um, anchor them get against um, you know what they should be familiar with and understand the scale, how to use the scale according to the rules of of ball, which are published. I also see them asking people in front of other people. They use many people use non-validated scales and um, I might be a bit academic here but it's quite e just as easy to use a validated scale as a non-validated scale um, so I think you know asking them you know the question properly phrasing the question ask them to give the descriptor then the number it only takes a couple of seconds to do and a bit of effort and, and um, you know be meticulous in your preparation and you get really good data but um, the problem with, with it is I suppose you don't get the good data until you use it for a long time and then that's when the more you have, the more valuable the data becomes. So when when you say a long time, how how long is a long time? Yeah, well, how long's a piece of string is the answer. But you know, like once you get a lot of data, you can contextualize other other responses too, whether that be wellness, performance, injury. Once you start getting enough sample to, you know, uh, and that's and also being able to handle that and visualize that effectively, that's when it becomes quite useful. But Early on, it's just a lot of work and people are all worried about annoying athletes. But if you give feedback back to your athletes on how it's useful, some cross-sectional, how it relates to themselves, you get buy-in early. Um, we've been using it now for 15, probably 20 years. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's a very effective tool. Um, the micro-technology alongside that is also very useful. Um, and it's probably made us a little bit brainless. You know, we can just put in a device in a shirt and download it at the end and then that sort of no interaction with an athlete required. Um, so that's a powerful, useful tool, but I still believe in terms of the global load indicator, um, the session RPE, nothing, nothing can replace that. So let, let's talk about where things are going because like I said to you before, I watched the um – the ECSS talk that you, you give for Catapult last year on, on this, on microtechnology and, and the kind of journey. Where do you think things are heading? Where's the next year, two years, five years, 10 years in terms of train load? Yeah, I, 
Uh, well, I think ultimately everything will be embedded microtechnology. You know, you'll be wearing things you won't know you're wearing. You'll be able to collect lots of data. But, you know, lots of data is interesting, but it also causes a tsunami. So our skill sets in the future will be handling that data. Um, data science skills will be important. But, you know, I think even though we've been, you know, for 20, a lot of people have been doing this for a long time, the, the most important thing is having a good system and, um, you know, and applying a system repetitively. In the future, I think it will be having you know, greater integration and, and the ability to combine scores with bigger data numbers using some of the you know, um, machine learning techniques to look at variables of interest. But fundamentally, um, I think the, uh, the, the the fundamental tools of you know, internal load responses, wellness won't go away, but I think we'll have more and more micro technology will give us a lot more information about the external loads that we're we're, um, we're using. In terms of research in this area, though, I think we need to do a lot of work of actually what we're doing, how effective is it, and how much does it actually contribute to a program, and is it is it all necessary? So we're coming back to Shane Malone in this next audio clip, which, again, is uh, episode 180 and 181. So in this little audio clip comes a very popular topic, which seems to come up all the time, whether it's me being out there speaking to people or on the podcast, and that's using absolute versus relative banding when you're using GPS. So Shane just simplifies it nicely, gives a context around when you'd use one and when you'd use another. So over to the audio clip with Shane Malone. Really, like it's kind of a, you, you can have kind of two thoughts on it. You can either compare everyone at just a baseline level, I suppose for me, uh, I've kind of two thoughts on this based on different sports I've worked in. With Gaelic football, for me, originally when I started and when we started our research, matches are won in absolute. So like, just because a player is quicker, he's going to beat that player, really, the player that's slower. So we just want to know, we can compare everyone at a baseline level. So we can see, we can get one positional trends, kind of benchmark everyone off everyone else. And we can understand the, the absolute distances that players need to cover. Secondly, like the relative thing, research has shown it's probably, it's relative to the individual. For me, relative probably more to do with like injury analysis and sort of injury associations rather than match play. Like match isn't one on the relative terms, it's one in absolute term. So for me, and in Gaelic football, I always analyze GPS match play in absolute terms. Also, when we were looking at setting our absolute terms, we did sort of 1K time trials and yo-yo tests on our players. And sort of when we looked at group means and group distributions, uh, most of the MAS or VVO2, depending on who you talk to, uh, came out at around 17 kilometers an hour for this for this cohort. So we sort of set our high speed running at 17 kilometers an hour. Similar in a way to some of the Australian real stuff that's been published is that most of it's done in absolute terms. So that's sort of our thought process, very simple process, just to compare everyone to everyone else. I suppose the profile of the players is quite similar at international level enough, yeah, yeah. compared to rugby where obviously the position has a huge impact there. Yeah, like I suppose if you look at it, most of the distribution in terms of body sizes and body compositions will be similar enough across the positional lines, Rob. So like, okay, there might be differences in sort of max speed profiles, but during match play, there's actually no differences and no significant differences in match speed profiles. So at the max speed they hit in match play, across position lines doesn't really tend to differ that much statistically. 
Okay, it might differ visually, but when you put it through stats analysis, it doesn't differ too much. So that's sort of where the absolute sort of came from. So this next audio clip dives a little bit into the archives from episode 97 with Richard Aikenhead. At the time, Richard was working at Aspire over in Qatar, but has since moved to work with the Football Association back here in England. So in this short audio clip, uh, Richard discusses what we can trust with regards to metrics when using GPS, but also dives a little bit deeper into his use of accelerometers, uh, obviously in the part of the, the hardware in uh, what's traditionally known as uh, GPS monitoring. So really interesting chat from uh, Richard, which I would encourage you to listen to the whole episode in 197. But in this audio clip, over to Richard. Yeah, I, I, I went ahead and uh, I, I've read something similar as well. Um, and I think that, first of all, uh, that's something that we have to keep doing. That's something that we have to keep questioning all of the time um, and not kind of rest on our laurels and accept things as being what they say on the box or what the manufacturer wants us to believe they are, essentially. Um, when it comes to the GPS, then in general, we know, obviously, that um, the higher speed or higher, more sort of brief, intense actions tend to be underreported and underestimated and that is an issue in football with the amount of accelerations, decelerations that that go on. So we always have to bear that in mind. Um, it would be fantastic if they were more accurate. Um, the more studies that come out, it just helps form. Uh, it helps us form more of a comprehensive understanding of what the limitations actually are. Um, and I think that sometimes gets a bad press the validity and reliability studies but because the technology is progressing so quickly it's important that we keep doing it and, and we keep going and we keep updating our understanding of, of exactly what they can do and what they can't um i tried to sort of look into the the effects of acceleration basically or, or how accurate um the units that we were using at the time are for measuring accelerations and decelerations and i had uh I had this unbelievable setup planned in my head. It looked a bit like the the board game Mousetrap. It was just all of this yes. stuff going on. <laughs> no, it was that ridiculous. sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> it was ridiculous, man. It was never never going to happen. Um, so in the end, we kind of settled on on somewhat of a compromise, and and the study was, of course, limited as a result of that. But what it what it did allow us to do, we used the two thousand hertz laser and. Um, sort of a, a manual rail system so that we could ensure the trajectory of the unit. Um, what it allowed us to do is get a bit more of an understanding of, of what's happening. And we know that these accelerations and decelerations are, <coughs> excuse me, are of physiological importance and of course of, uh, have a performance relevance as well. Um, but we know that we're not able to to measure them accurately. And so what that ends up doing is it restricts us from being able to do anything more than make sort of general observations on those types of things. So in my experience, I think it's fine in, in terms of profiling drills and, and things like that generally when you, when you're able to collect a lot of data and, and keep adding that to it. Um, when it comes down to getting into the real nitty-gritty and the details of it, uh, I don't think it allows us to, to fully do that yet. Um, so I think that's where the that's where the GPS stuff is at the moment, still progressing, of course. Um, 
and I think that as a as a community as well, the practitioners, you know, we have a lot to offer feedback uh, to the manufacturers. I know that some manufacturers are more open than others, and people decry the whole uh, the sort of black box type of setup where you don't know what's in what's inside of the unit, you don't know where the metrics are coming from or how they're calculated, their validity and reliability. And I think people are. As, as consumers more than anything else as well are starting to say, you know, we, we don't really have to put up with that. Um, we're going to go ahead and investigate things ourselves. It'll come out in the wash. So I, I think we need, we need to carry on with that. Um, in terms of being able to measure what we want them to measure, I think that the accelerometers are a lot more valid. Um, at being able to do that, obviously, it depends again on the on the specification of the hardware and and the software and the algorithms that's used as well. So there's there's still a lot to to consider there. But generally, um, for measuring what the measure in terms of GPS measures, the the locomotion accelerations measure the accelerations of the segment of the body that it's attached to. Then I think the accelerometers are generally more valid and reliable for sure. So with more kind of consumer units coming on the market that are focused on the GPS side of things rather than the accelerometer, what what are the um, the metrics that we can be confident in um, in using to to make decisions? Yeah, I, I think it's um, obviously the the very vague general ones. <laughs> yeah, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know your total distance and your distance covered over certain. Um, whether they're sort of relative or arbitrary speed thresholds, but the the biggest thresholds is obviously as you narrow down those velocity bands, then you open yourself up to more error, basically <clears throat> in, in percentage terms. So it's better to to try and stay general if possible, um, and you can still gain quite a lot of insight into that. Uh, so whether that's deciding to look at um, your your intensity in, in terms of meters per minute so it, it's not just taking into consideration the variables it's obviously how you treat the data as well and uh the short technical note by matthew varley a few years ago um you know when he was saying let's not just go by averages that we're measuring in terms of 45 minute averages or 90 minute or 15 we need to kind of delve into the data a little bit more and see what's going on almost on a minute by minute basis um so even with fairly general variables there's still a lot that you can do to try and understand the demands of the game and understand the demands of training within that um when it comes to the acceleration stuff um it got to the point where after the validation work and the reliability work um i basically and, and, and it was arbitrarily it was arbitrary as well but I stuck with measuring accelerations over two meters a second squared, and, and that was it. So I measured everything over that, um, and that I drew that line in the sand. It was it was partly based on the data that I collected. It was based on some of the accelerations and decelerations that I'd measured in the players with the laser, um, and, and and a couple of other things as well. But again, there's there's certainly some subjectiveness on, on from my side of things on on sticking with that two meters a second square because th there's a lot of things that matter obviously the initial velocity that you uh go into that you start from with that acceleration as you as your initial velocity increases your acceleration capacity decreases so a one meter per second 
acceleration if you're starting from quite a high initial velocity could still be maximal um whereas a one meter second acceleration from a from a standing start is nothing um so there are lots of different facets to the problem and i, I do feel that we are inching along in, in terms of the progress and, and we'll keep going and hopefully people keep asking the right questions and, and doing that work to increase our understanding so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with the five guys on the masterclass in training load. Just want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So coming at a good time in pre-season, uh, if you are looking for any extra bits or looking for a complete gym fit out, make sure you have a little uh, have a little look uh, on Black Box Fitness. So blkboxfitness.com. Recently met Greg and the guys, super nice guys, uh, doing some great work out there, um, linking in with the guys at play for their flooring, um, making some really good kit over in uh, Belfast in Northern Ireland and shipping all, all over the world and all over Europe. So if you want to follow them on Twitter or Instagram, it's at BLKBoxFitness. And like I said, if you jump over to their website, BLKBoxFitness.com, you can find out a little bit more information, but really good guys and we'll, um, I will definitely look after you. So over to part two with the masterclass in training load and hope you enjoy. So this next audio clip, we've got a clip from Mathieu Lacombe, who is the sports scientist at PSG, uh, Paris Saint-Germain. And this comes from episode 169 and Mathieu discusses neuromuscular fatigue and how we can go about measuring it. He also delves a little bit deeper into ADI. So ADI is a software platform which um, which Mathieu talks a lot about in the episode, but I also discuss in more in depth in episode 191 with Andrew Gray, who is the guy behind ADI. So if you want to know more about the context behind the chat and uh, ADI, jump forward and go to episode 191. But for this audio clip, over to Matthew. Uh, there is many, many definitions in the literature depending on your, your field of expertise about uh, neuromuscular fatigue. Neuromuscular fatigue traditionally, traditionally is associated with change anywhere on the pathway between the brain and the muscle fibers um, with effect at the motor unit level considered peripheral and events occurring upstairs in the brain or spinal cord considered central. But for me as a sports scientist with a practical, straight to the field interest, uh, a simple definition would be um, neuromuscular fatigue uh, is associated with a reduction in force and or power output of a muscle or a reduction in efficiency of this muscle group. And if we look at the recent paper we, we've published about neuromuscular loads or neuromuscular work, it's more about uh, looking at what can affect neuromuscular fatigue and uh, so basically it's uh, a compound of acceleration, deceleration, change of directions, all what you uh, all what you sorry uh, every sorry. movement in every mo- movement in, in which you will need to have kind of maximal muscle contraction. So that's uh-huh. my definition. So are you 
to, to get that neuromuscular load, are you accumulating all them things that you mentioned? So accelerations, decelerations, are you pulling them together to create a number? Um, using ADI, uh, okay. using ADI, we have a, uh, algorithm which, uh, use, uh, number and magnitude of acceleration, number and magnitude of deceleration, number and magnitude of change of duration to compound the number, which is a neuromuscular load indicator. It's arbitrary units. Uh, it's also taken into account the, the waist of the, of the player. And uh, it can give you a great idea about the neuromuscular load of your training or your drills. Um, so that's great. I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about ADI. Is that, is that all right? Yeah, yeah, no problem. So this, so I was actually speaking to some some of the guys at Irish Rugby because they've also got ADI, and that was that was just yesterday. So. So what more, apart from the, the kind of neuromuscular load um, indicator, what else does ADI give you? What is ADI? Uh, so in my, in my experience, uh, the way Andrew uh, filter the, the data, it's uh, something very advanced, maybe one of the more advanced I've seen uh, in the in the last couple of years. So it allows us to have super clean data. Uh, and um, also it allows us to have a force load, which is a, a matrix uh, of the, uh, the sum of impacts you have on the ground. Uh, but also it takes user uh, imbalances. So when you have force load, you can look at first load on the left leg, first load on the right leg. So look at imbalances and uh, the way you go further than what I've seen in the past is that you get some, this imbalances, you you get this on acceleration, deceleration, change of direction, high speed. So with that, you can have a, a clear view of where the deceleration, these balance are, are happening and uh, then go back to the physios or the strength and conditioning coach and said, okay, I've seen um, imbalances during maybe deceleration. Uh, does he get a knee, knee pain or something like that? And something you can start a conversation with the player and some stuff can pop up. So that's great. Mm -hmm. So that, so you export your GPS data and then run it through ADI yep. and that spits out all what you've just said. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, that's it. So okay. you get your data export into uh, a DB3 or SDB3 uh, file, then back into ADI, uh, bring everything into ADI. It's run the file and then export a basic CSV that we can uh, process in our own database and provide the reports. So is there, is there any research that you know of that is, that's looked at all these metrics from ADI? Or has there anything been done internally? I don't think, I don't think too much done, uh, except Martin's, Martin's work. Uh, but we've done, we've done internal, internal work and validation of all of those metrics. And uh, so it's great. 
So second audio clip from Matteo discussing, again, neuromuscular fatigue, but how the measures integrate into the wider program at Paris Saint-Germain. So over to the second part of the audio clip with Matteo Lacombe. Tra traditionally, there is a, a, a lot of way to, to monitor neuromuscular fatigue. Uh, if you are in a, in a lab, you can measure it through maximal voluntary contraction with EMG, but in the context of team sports, there is several limitations. You, you will need specific setup for this test. It's time consuming. Uh, mainly it's done on non-specific movement and it's definitely not adapted to team sports. So back in the years, uh, people have moved on more uh, power assessments as the means to uh, track neuromuscular fatigue. So one basic possibility, and it's one of the main used testing now in top clubs is through maximal jump test with tools such as team aware or force deck you are now able to monitor jump performance on a weekly basis in a team of let's say 30 to 40 players um so linear encoder all you a lot of monitoring of maximum ace peak and mean power peak or mean velocity during the jump uh, with force plate, you can go even further and assess contraction to flight time ratios. So that's that's something I was using a lot when I was working with the French rugby union. Um, we were using this kind of test on a weekly basis to track how player can cope with the training load or competition demand during congested period. Um, it's really interesting. Um, but there is some limitation also, you need to set up a proper warm up. So you need to have a proper strength session or power session. Uh, you need to assess player one by one, or if you have two or three GMY, you can do two or three by three, but it's also, again, a bit time consuming. Um, more recently, uh, Webby proposed a simple maximal second test on the wild bike as a way to monitor neuromuscular fatigue also. Well, it's quite simple. Huh? Following a five-minute warm-up again on the bike, you just need to perform two sprints of five to six seconds on a wild bike with a one-minute break. So if you have, let's say, five wild bikes in 40 minutes, all your team can be tested. So it's less specific, but a bit more practical in my in my opinion. Um, Is that just looking at peak power, Mathieu? Um, so, one of my uh, rugby students, uh, when I was at the FFR, was um, compare the usefulness of jumping and cycling tests and all the different metrics. Uh, if you want to get all all those data, it's been published in Sport Performance and Science Report. So, all the data set is av available for who wants to to redo the the stats and everything. <laughs> um, the, Basically, a report that the ratio of typical error and to small swathway change was the lowest for maximal power during the cycling test compared to all of the vi variables uh, or tests. So the more useful uh, for me is to monitor neuromuscular performance on a cycling test with uh, maximum power. The mean of the two sprints is the best. But if you can't do cycling tests or you want to stick to jump tests, then you should consider using peak velocity rather than ace or mean power. 
I think it's the best signal to know the ratio, and so it's uh, most useful to most useful to consider when uh, looking at jump tests. But just so, go on, sorry, go on, sorry, Matteo, go on, carry on. Uh, just just as a side note, uh, in this study was not elite athletes; it was uh, sub elite athletes. So maybe with elite athletes with better training, more uh, familiarized to jump tests, the jump tests numbers can become better. So you can decrease the the noise and uh, increase the usefulness of the of the test, but with young guys without a clear and reliable jump technique, I would better track power on the cycling test. No problem with technique. So sorry to, to go over it again. So if you're gonna if you're gonna do the, the watt bike test that you mentioned, the, the six second sprints, you'd look at you look at peak power and yeah. the mean across the, the two the two tests. What would you look at if you were and how would you set up the um using it the gym aware? What kind of weight would you look at? What kind of exercise would you use? And what, um, and what was the metric again that you'd look at? Uh, we were using a simple counter movement jump because it's uh, the more reliable for, uh, let's say, for athletes. Um, we were doing a basic four jumps, uh, uh, exclude the lowest and highest uh, values, mean the two other values, and look at... Uh, uh, peak velocity, which is the more reliable, uh, and also, uh, the more sensitive to training or competition schedule. So for me, it's the best variable to, to track. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, and how, and what kind of differences are you looking for before you make an intervention? Um, just doing some stuff, uh, basic stats, uh, uh, looking at clear variations. So knowing the typical error and the small twice what change, you can sum up the two. Uh, I think uh, typical error for that kind of test is around 2%. Small worst what change is about uh, 3% around that. So if you have a roughly, let's say, 5% decrease in your performance, you have a 75% of a clear decrease in your performance. So when you have, let's say, 5% or more decrease in performance, you should highlight and change your your routine or change your training if you want to adapt your training. So last but not least, we have an audio clip from episode 137, which was with Alad Walters and Adam Sheehan. So at the time, these two guys were working together at Munster. Alad has since moved on to work with South African Rugby Union. But in this episode, Adam discusses repeated high-intensity efforts and using that metric in uh, the conditioning drills which he creates and delivers over at Munster Rugby. So last audio clip, I uh, hope you enjoyed the training load masterclass more to come there'll be a part two a part three and a part four of this uh but last but not least over to adam sheehan the actual definition of how, it, how it's collected on yeah so what, what is classed as a repeat high intensity effort and um, so the way we have set up our bands is it, it's, it's three efforts in a 21 second clock um and within those it could it could be a velocity effort, it could be an acceleration or deceleration effort, or it could be a, a collision effort. Um, and
And for us, then, we look at how many of those bouts. So if you got three of those efforts in that 21-second clock window, you would pick up one bout. Um, and for a game, for example, we would look at how many bouts do you get and also how many efforts then maximally did you manage to get into your, your bouts. So that would mean that the minimum is, is three efforts to go in there, but you could also keep on pushing that upwards to try and get maybe 11, 14, 15 efforts within that one bout. Um, and we'd use that then to kind of look and assess the game and the players. It was a massive part of our preseason last year. Um, it was one of our primary focuses for conditioning was growing the maximum number of efforts you could get into a boat. And I guess the rationale for that was if I go back to the, the passages of play, um, when there's a longer passage of play going on, Typically, because it's a longer, the player has a better opportunity to have a longer repeated high density effort boat. So he has a greater opportunity to squeeze more efforts into that one boat. And we sold it in the way that if a player could get more efforts into his boat, he could impart himself onto that passage with greater effect. Be that in defense, he could hit, make a tackle, reload back into the line, get the correct line and spacing, re-accelerate back off the line and make another collision. And we wanted players to have these big physical efforts going on within that passage to try and positively impact that passage as much as possible. Um, so in defense, you want to force the opposition team to attack you for as long as possible. And the golden the golden ticket is that you turn over the ball or it, gets, it, gets, it, it stops in play. And in attack, you want to provide as many options in attack as you can. You need a massive work rate in attack to provide those options so that you can break down a defence. But ideally, that's what we wanted to use it for. We wanted to sell it in the way that it wasn't fitness for the sake of fitness. It was getting you better to have a better chance of physically imparting yourself onto that passage in a positive way. So how many bouts would you expect in a in a regular game? Um, it would vary. So because we use absolute bands, um, it would vary from position to position. So... Okay. The, easiest, the easiest efforts to get really are, are probably the velocity efforts. Um, and what I mean by that is like a, when, when you run and you pick up an effort that hits this, the band for that um, and you pick up one effort for that run, say, for example. Um, so you might only get maybe three to four for your front rows, the guys who are, who are heavy and, and a bit slower. It's not as easy for those guys to pick up, um, to pick up those velocity efforts. But for your back three, you, you could get upwards of 12 to 14 efforts and there would be a mix then per position. The uh, the back rows would pick up probably a couple of more collisions in their biggest boat as well as acceleration and deceleration efforts because they're, they're closer, um, I guess, to where the ball is coming from. And then the back three, their biggest efforts will have a large amount of running velocity efforts inside there because they are probably... Um, yo-yoing up and down covering kick space or folding with the line on the outside edge of the line where there's the most amount of space anyway so it's it's very it's very particular per position but also I guess the interesting thing is we've seen differences from coach to coach in my tenure of taking care of the GPS I've seen differences as a whole of the GPS even on coaching styles I guess ways we play mm-hmm so I'm guessing with that kind of individual nature of that metric, there's, that means that the condition has to be reasonably individualized? 
yeah, we kind of subgroup it down. So in the preseason, we tried to we tried to subgroup it down into three categories of front five, middle five, and back five. Um, kind of a general rugby grouping of positions. So, um, and then we tried to focus the the work that each of those subgroups did. We tried to focus it particularly for their position so they were getting better at something that they would be tasked with doing. There was no point in us giving the back three a huge amount of collision-based events when they don't get that many in a game. And the same way, there was no point in giving the front five, the props, for example, a huge amount of distance to run and velocity efforts because they don't get that either. They get more, they actually get more static stress and collisions and far more, um, I guess static exertions in in mauling or in scrum scrummaging or in counter rooking, where the GPS isn't actually rewarding them all that well in terms of repeated high intensity efforts. So they could rightly gripe at me that they're not getting rewarded properly. But we did try to tailor their conditioning to be best suited per position. So do you do you try and uh, make all your conditioning with the ball in a kind of game situation, or is is some just purely grind it out? on the kind of uh, non-rugby specific stuff? I guess it's, it's popular in two ways, really. Uh, the conditioning I would view, like general conditioning, is a general stimulus. Uh, we, we would leave no ball attached to it, um, or, or very minimal at best, but there would be other aspects then where, if, if I give this example of pre-season, where we would have had conditioning drills outlined, would say the repeated high-intensity effort drill set up for the subgroups, so there will be a number of stations available there that they will go through activity exercises specific to them, as well as having, say, two other groups who would be playing a conditioning game, um, and then we would rotate one team at a time to go around. That would give us a general stimulus of running and, I guess, the ball involved in the conditioning game, but also we'd have a very specific stimulus to that position that would pre-fatigue them or post-fatigue them after the game, um, the conditioning game. But then once we moved into the in-season, and this was probably one of the main crux of the talk that I gave um, for Catapult at St. George's Park, was that you actually run out of time. You don't have the time anymore in-season to do extra conditioning, to do little top-ups. You need all your conditioning coming, by and large, from your actual rugby session. So for that then, we work very closely with the coaches to make sure that we're getting good demands from our training that is appropriate to playing the game. Um, that that's the main premise of it thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast I hope you enjoyed the masterclass uh, the train load masterclass with Aaron, Adam, Matthew Richard and Shane so make sure if you've, if you've heard any snippets that you want to dive into look, have a little look back in the archives get downloading the, the podcast that, uh, that caught your eye caught your ear and, um, and give it a listen, give the whole episode a listen, because these five guys gave some uh, invaluable content in their, uh, in their respective podcasts. So thank you very much to Val Performance, Force Dex, and Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. Make sure you check them out, have a little look on the websites, follow them on Twitter, uh, and see what they're about. But thanks for tuning in again, and I will see you next week.